All right, this is a, a pretty famous passage, um, and there's a lot in here. So let me read it, and then we'll get started. So Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision uh, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him, in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we know this is a familiar passage, maybe something that we've heard already or that we know. Um, And so, Father, I pray as we hear the preaching of your word now that you would remind us that when your word speaks, um, that you speak, and that you speak authoritatively into our lives. You speak words of life um, that we need to hear. And so, um, by your spirit, Lord, would you give us understanding, help us to see more richly, more clearly, uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, as Paul writes about. And so, would you do work on our hearts now? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) What is your greatest accomplishment? What is your greatest accomplishment? I want you to think about that. Uh, I watched a documentary on Netflix recently. Uh, it's called Meru, um, M-E-R-U. It's about these three climbers uh, and their attempt to conquer Mount Meru. It's uh, a mountain in the Himalayas. And Meru is considered the holy grail of climbing. Because these three guys, uh, they had, these guys had climbed Mount Everest like four to five times before. But no one had climbed Meru before. No one had beat it. Meru was over 21,000 feet high, and the last, like, 4,000 feet or so, uh, it's known as the shark's fin. And it's, it's known as a shark's fin because it's this, like, massive, just vertical wall, super, super difficult um, for climbing. And the documentary itself is fascinating. Um, they, it's crazy, like, what these guys do. They're, like, literally pitching a tent, like, on the side of a mountain, and they're, like, sleeping in it. I don't even know how that's possible. Um, and these guys are filming it themselves the whole time. So you have these like super gorgeous views of uh, the landscape and, and you get like a full taste of the wind and, and the snow and, and all the stress that they're going, to, or going through. And these guys, they attempted to climb for the first time in 2008. Uh, and during that climb, this crazy snowstorm came in. And so they were forced to just stay in their little tent and wait it out for a few days. Well, that was a problem because they only brought up so much food with them. 
And so they, they ration as much as they can, um, and, and they actually get to within like 100 meters of the top. But at that point, they realize, like, we don't have enough food. If we, if we try to go up there, we're going to die. Like, we're not going to make it back alive. And so they actually have to make the call to go back down if they want to uh, stay alive. And so three years go by, and during that time, the film kind of follows each of these guys' lives. You find out more about them. And even though one of them uh, specifically vowed, like, I'm never going to climb again after that, that trip in 2008, uh, as you're watching this, you kind of already know they're going to try this again. And along the way, the film reveals all of these things that happened, all of, like, some background information, all of these reasons why they shouldn't go again, why it makes no sense for them to go again. But you know, as you're watching this, like, they have to do this, even if it puts their life at risk. And they say things like, uh, they, say thing, they say, it's the culmination of all I've done. It's all that I've wanted to do. Uh, the idea of not climbing was too much for me to imagine. And for me, I, I think that was one of the most uh, interesting parts of that film, is that this mountain, Mount Maru, had become this thing that like, represented their demons of the past. It represented all of their dreams, all of their ambitions. It represented the reason that they existed and the thing that gave meaning to their lives. And for them to not be able to conquer this thing after having tried to do it would have been too much for them to live with. And so they went again. And I won't tell you whether they made it or not, um, but somehow one of them made a documentary about it. <laughs> too much... <laughs> that was like a delayed reaction. <laughs> too much lesser degree. I imagine that many of you have thought through that question yourself. What is your greatest accomplishment? Or maybe even more fundamentally, what is that advantage? What is that accomplishment? What is that accolade for you in your life that gives you value and approval and acceptance? Like, what is that thing for you that justifies your very existence? In fact, for many of us, we've thought about this question through, and uh, we've actually written it down on paper, right? And we call it what? A resume. Isn't that what a resume is? It's an argument. It's a case that you present before others for why you should be let in someplace. Whether that is a job, a school, a program. These are reasons why I should be accepted and approved. These are the things that validate me and, and justify my existence. Now, I wonder what that looks like for us when it comes to our relationship with God. It's worth our time, I think, to think through this question because God is the one person whose approval we actually need. It's one of the most important questions that you can ask yourself. What makes me accepted and approved when you stand before God? And how you choose to answer that question, I think, is the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel. Um, and I think most of you here, especially if you've grown up in the church, like, you know how to answer that question, right? What makes me right before God? Well, it's Christ's righteousness, right? It's not anything that I do. I mean, there was literally a reformation that happened over it. But I would argue that how you or I choose to answer that question, what makes me right before God, that it also plays itself out in dozens of many other areas of our lives. But it's not just this theological question that we must answer, but it plays out in every area of, of our life. Um, it plays out in how we think about serving at church. It plays out in how we respond after sin, how quickly we repent. Uh, it plays out in how we think about the Christian life as a whole. And so our passage tonight, I think, is a great help for us um, in thinking through that question for ourselves as Paul did. And this is what we learned. This is our key idea. 
Our only confidence before God is Christ our righteousness. Our only confidence before God is Christ our righteousness. A few, uh, four different headings for us. Um, they all start with R. Uh, but let's start with number one, religiosity. Religiosity, verse one. <clears throat> Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so some context for us. Uh, we mentioned last time that Paul, throughout the letter of Philippians, keeps holding up certain people as examples of what he's teaching us. Right? And he gives us both good and bad examples. For example, for example, the lives of men like Timothy and Epaphroditus were good examples. Right? They showed us what it looked like to be committed to the gospel. On the other hand, you have people like the nation of Israel. And they served as a poor example. Right? They, they served as an example of grumbling against God, which uh, Paul warns us against. They, they showed us the serious consequences of doing things with a complaining heart. Well, as we get to our passage now, uh, he's going to do this in chapter 3 as well. And here at the beginning, he's warning these Philippian believers to look out for, he uses that phrase three times, to look out for a certain group of people. And these people were known as the Judaizers. You might have heard of them before. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile Christians were still required to submit to the Old Testament law. And they, they taught that that was a necessary part of salvation. In other words, if you were a Gentile who wanted to follow Christ, these Judaizers told you that first you have to become a Jew, right? you have to adopt all of our traditions, all of our rules, and then you could accept Christ. And specifically in our passage, it seems that one of those big sticking points was circumcision. And that's actually mentioned several times in our passage. And so if you look at verse 2, that's who Paul is talking about. He's describing these Judaizers, and he uses three different descriptions for them. Okay, and he says, look out for three different times. Um, look at what he says, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, I know some of you like, love dogs, and so you're like, oh my gosh, like, dogs so cute. Realize, back in the day, in first century context, dogs weren't your cute, lovable, huggable, like man's best friend kind of animal. Okay? Like, people didn't have dogs as pets. Uh, dogs were scavengers. They would roam the streets. They would eat anything, including dead animals, human corpses, even their own vomit. Uh, I was reading one commentary, and it said that dogs were zoological lowlife. <laughs> I felt like that was kind of extreme. Um, but the Jews considered them as unclean animals, and they even used the word dogs to refer to Gentiles. If you remember back to this story in uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, there's this Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile woman who comes before Jesus, right? And, and Jesus is like, oh, I only came for the Jews, for Israel. And this woman says, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table, right? For referring to Gentiles. Second, he says, look out for the evildoers. And so more literally, uh, that, that word evildoers is translated those who work iniquity. And the idea there is um, these, these Judaizers think they're doing good works before God. Right? They, in their attempt to get Gentiles to submit to the Old Testament law, they think they are workers of righteousness. They think they're pleasing God with their good works. Um, but Paul says, no, you're not doing good works. You're workers of evil. And then the last thing there, those who mutilate the flesh, this last one is Paul's jab at that circumcision thing that we talked about. Um, 
In fact, the way that Paul even puts it in the Greek is like he's like refusing to even call it circumcision. He says, that's not circumcision, that's mutilation. Um, If you're new to Christianity or the Bible, uh, I know circumcision might seem like an extremely random thing to to come up. Let me explain. Um, In Genesis chapter 17, God establishes circumcision as a sign of his covenant with Abraham. Okay, so circumcision was supposed to serve as this physical marker of God's people. That's what we learn in Genesis 17. But even in the Old Testament, it was clear that this was just an outward uh, symbol. The prophets made clear that circumcision was just a sign. They repeatedly warned that circumcision of your heart, this inward kind of thing, was more important than that of the body. And the Judaizers totally missed that. They didn't get it. Their attempts to elevate circumcision into this thing that was more than what God had intended, Paul says, was nothing more than mutilation of the flesh. And so with each of these like, different descriptions, Paul, what's he's do- what he's doing is he's turning the tables on these Judaizers and he gives them a taste of their own medicine. He says, look, you guys call the Gentiles the dogs, but you guys are actually the dogs. You think your rituals, your requirements are good works before God? They're actually evil works. And you've placed so much value on this physical sign of circumcision without this true and corresponding circumcision of your heart that it's nothing more than mutilation. You're just cutting yourself. See, the more fundamental issue here is that very question that we asked at the beginning. It's how do you get right with God? And for these Judaizers, their answer to that question, how do you get right with God, was Judaism plus something extra. Or it was Jesus and the gospel plus something else. They had placed so much stock in their identity, their heritage, their tradition, and they thought that that would get them right with God. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says these are the things that really matter. These are the true marks of the people of God. Uh, When Paul says we are the circumcision, he shows that identification identification, with the people of God uh, was for both Jew and Gentile. And more importantly, it was about this inward reality. We are the circumcision rather than this outward sign. He says that true believers worship by the Spirit of God. Um, that should make us think of John 4, when, and when Jesus is talking with that, that woman at the well, right? and he says something similar. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's John 4, 23 to 24. That conversation, the woman is asking Jesus, hey, like, where do we worship? Do we worship on the mountain, or do we go to Jerusalem? And she was so focused on the place of worship, and Jesus said, no, it's not about the place. Right? It's about whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who serves as the new sign of membership into God's people, not this physical sign of circumcision. And the last thing Paul says is, as believers, we glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our boast. He is the basis of our being right before God. And to glory in Christ Jesus means that, as Paul says, and negatively stated, it means that we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. You see, that was their problem. These Judaizers placed their confidence in the flesh. And by that word flesh here, I think Paul is just referring to someone's natural achievements. Okay, your flesh is just everything outside of Christ. Whether it's their rituals, their traditions, their Jewishness, their works of righteousness. 
These Judaizers place their trust in those things. Because I think that's the big question for us from this passage. Where will you place your confidence? Where do you place your trust? What is the object of your faith? Right, what is, what is the, who's the person or what is the thing that you have chosen to bear the weight of your expectations, the weight of your hopes and your dreams? And as believers, Paul says, we glory in Christ Jesus. And we boast in him alone. We forsake placing our confidence in anything else. We don't boast in the flesh. And in the following verses, Paul is going to drive that point home and he shares his personal testimony. Okay, so point number two, Paul's resume. Paul's resume. <clears throat> um, early on when I first started dating Bree, my wife now, uh, I remember there was this conversation that we had. And uh, I think we were still getting to know each other at that point, so like, I didn't know too much about her. Um, and so like, we're talking, and I'm trying to find things to talk about. right? And she was in dental school at that time, so like, oh, let's talk about teeth. So, so I was telling her about this thing um, that I heard from a friend called oil pulling. Have you guys heard of that? Okay, basically, uh, you put a tablespoon of oil in your mouth and you swish it around for like 15 to 20 minutes, like every morning when you're showering or whatever. And uh, it's supposed to be really good for your teeth. And so I told her about this. And I'm like, yeah, like it's, it's really good for your teeth. And I think uh, she was just being nice at the time. And she's like, oh, like never heard of it, but that's cool. And later on, she like, told me about that conversation, and she's like, yeah, that was a bunch of nonsense. And I uh, realized, like, you're talking to someone who's in dental school, right? <laughs> and so moral of the story is don't try to sound smart about something when you're talking to, an es- to- talking to an expert on that subject. Well, I think that's kind of what Paul is doing here in verses 4 to 6. Look what he says in verse 4. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. See, for these Judaizers, it might have been easy for them to go around uh, to these Gentile Christians uh, who who don't know much about Judaism, right, and walk around as if there was some elitist group waving around their Jewish regulations and requirements. But Paul looks at that and he says, look, if you want to talk about Jewishness, if you want to talk about reasons for confidence in the flesh, I'm an expert, I am an authority on the subject. Paul says, I can play your own game better than you can. In verses 5 to 6, he's going to list seven items on his spiritual resume, so to speak. Um, And they're kind of in two categories. The first four are advantages that were his by his birth. They speak of the family that he was born into, where he came from. And the last three are advantages that he attained. So let's look at each of them. First, Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, and this comes from Genesis 17, 12. Um, this was in accordance with God's command. God commanded Israel, circumcise every male when he was eight days old. And so this was the way it was supposed to be done. And, and this, this set Paul, uh, Paul apart, right? This set Paul apart from those who were never circumcised or those who were converted to Judaism and, and were circumcised later on in their lives. Uh, Paul says similarly, he was of the people of Israel. Okay, and, and here Paul is speaking specifically of his ethnicity. Uh, there were those who were Jewish who were not part of ethnic Israel. And so here Paul says, no, I, I was, I, I am part of the people of Israel. I'm no second class convert. Third, even more impressive, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Um, if you don't know, Israel had 12 tribes, and the tribe of Benjamin was one of the, uh, I guess, more prestigious tribes. The tribe of Benjamin was only, was only one of two tribes who remained loyal to King David. Uh, the city of Jerusalem was within the borders of this tribe's territory. The tribe of Benjamin also provided the nation of Israel with its first king, Saul. Next, Paul says, as, uh, next, Paul says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so here, Paul is talking about the culture that he came from. And I realized uh, we still speak this way, kind of, but we use metaphors, like food metaphors, like Twinkie or egg. Um, like this person is this ethnicity on the outside, but actually this culture on the inside. I'll let you figure out the rest on your own. But this was happening in Paul's day too. That there were many Jews who were Hebrew on the outside, but they were Greek on the inside. This process called Hellenization. But Paul says that his family, like they weren't Greek on the inside. They were Hebrew through and through. Uh, they, his family remained staunchly Jewish. They didn't adopt Gentile influence. And so even from these first four things, we see that Paul came from this place of privilege. He had the religion, he had the ethnicity, he had the family line, he had the culture. His parents set him up well. He was first class in every category. And yet, he wasn't some entitled, spoiled child who just took advantage of his privilege. He was just as committed to the law and his heritage as his parents were. We see this in the next three descriptions. Number five, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, I know that most of you are uh, probably familiar with the Pharisees from Jesus' uh, encounter with them in the, in the Gospels. Um, but I think, unfortunately, we've maybe like, vilified them a little bit. And trying to fit that caricature of them that we might have in our minds into this passage actually keeps us from, I think, understanding what Paul is trying to say here. See, when we think of Pharisee, we automatically think of like legalistic, right, or corrupt, or hypocritical, um, or even evil. Right? After all, Jesus called them a brood of vipers. And that's kind of the picture that we have. But I think if we were to have Pharisees today, they wouldn't be the kinds of people that you might think. Pharisees were influential. They were highly respected. They were moral and educated. Uh, Pharisaism began as this sect of Judaism because they were just so devoted to the teaching of Scripture. And what, what was happening was they looked around them and they saw Jews who were gradually intermingling with the culture. They were starting to compromise with Greek culture. And so the Pharisees committed to the purity of God's word. They separated, which is what Pharisees mean, separated, um, and they, they were committed to the purity of the word of God. In fact, they were so committed to it that they added to scripture. That was their issue. They built a hedge around scripture's commandments so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking it. What Paul is saying here is that when it came to the law, Paul was as devout as he could be. He was educated. He was moral. In fact, Paul's commitment to the law and his zeal even led him to become a persecutor of the church. And that was how far Paul was willing to go to defend the purity of God's people, Israel. That was how far Paul was willing to go to protect the law. One commentator points out that if these Judaizers were, quote-unquote, persecuting the church, then Paul is saying here that he even surpasses them in that. Number seven, that final phrase there, I think serves as a summary statement of Paul's entire resume. He says, as to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. If you want to talk about the standard of conduct which is laid out in the Old Testament, that's what Paul is talking about when he says righteousness here. If you want to talk about all that the Old Testament teaches, the way that you should live, the things that you should do, Paul says, I was blameless. There was nothing that you could hold against him, that he checked every single box. And realize this, it wasn't even that Paul believed that he was sinless. Okay, he, he didn't think that he was like this perfect guy. You see, the law taught that there was a need for remedy for sin. The law included things about uh, how to make certain sacrifices, when to offer certain sacrifices, and to all of to which Paul was unflinchingly obedient. He was obedient to offering the sacrifices for his sin when he needed to. He knew about the Day of Atonement, that one day each year when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. See, whenever, I th- whenever we think of righteousness under the law, I think we can just tend to like, reduce it to this external kind of thing. Right, like it's just mere formality. But realize Paul wasn't just performing these rituals for the sake of ritual. He truly believed that this was the right way. He truly believed that he was pleasing God, that these things that he was doing were how, were how he would be made right before God. See, elsewhere in scripture, uh, it doesn't speak of blamelessness as like this automatically bad thing. It actually speaks of blamelessness as this good thing. Right? People who were obedient to God, whom God looks with favor upon. And Paul says, that was me. That was the kind of person I am. This was his spiritual resume. If you read that and you would walk away thinking, man, that is impressive. That is first class. That is top of the line. Blameless. You couldn't beat someone like that. Now, sermon prepping this week, I, uh, I googled spiritual resume I was hoping to find like a, like a resource or illustration um, to add to my message for tonight. And I clicked on one of the results. Um, and it was literally someone's spiritual resume. It was like really weird. This guy wrote down a list of like all the different positions he served in at church, like all the theological topics he knew about, all the Christian books he read, all the papers that he wrote, things like that. I didn't know that existed or people did that. But what about you? What are the things that you would write down? Whether or not we might actually say it out loud, I think many of us um, can walk in here to church thinking that because we have done this, or because we have done that, because we serve in this ministry, or because we give regularly, or we say the right things, or we know the right language, or we show up here week in and week out because um, our friendships are strong and healthy, because we have accountability, uh, because our families are good, they have it all together, because we don't participate in things that the world does. Because of all of these things, somehow... All of that merits us salvation. Like somehow that makes us right before God. So what is that thing for you? Or what are those things for you? Is it your religious observance? Is it your personal success? Is it being born in a Christian family? Is it your education? Is it the fact that you know like Reformed theology or you have head knowledge? Is it uh, the fact that you were consistent in your daily devotions and your prayer life? What are those things that you would have on your resume? Point number three, the reversal. Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered this loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Now, Paul says it a few different ways, but this is his big idea. All of these reasons that he had for confidence in the flesh, all of these gains, he says, are now loss. That all of these things are worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul says this, I thought for the longest time, this is how I gained favor with God. This is how I earned God's affection, his approval, his attention. But when Christ entered into my life, everything changed. All of these things that were at the center of my universe, right, like attaining all of these accomplishments, maintaining all of these advantages, all of these things that were at the center of my universe, that I placed my confidence in, they are now rubbish to me. My accomplishments, my money, my education, my influence, the power, my morality, the things that shone so brightly in my eyes, Paul says, I now know something that is so much more brilliant that outshines them all. Now everything I count as loss. There's this great story in Acts chapter 27 where Luke actually uses that word loss there, and I think it helps us understand what Paul is saying here. In Acts 27, Paul is uh, on a ship, and uh, he, they actually uh, had to go through this like, really violent storm on their way to Rome. And so they're in the middle of this storm, and they don't know if they're going to make it. Um, and so they begin to throw their cargo overboard to lighten the ship. When they started that journey, that cargo for them, the things that they had on board, that was their profit, that was their business, that was their livelihood, that was a gain to them. Right? But when that storm came, what happened? They realized that that cargo was going to endanger their lives. It's not just that that cargo was worthless, right? it didn't matter anymore. No, it actually was a liability for them. They had to throw it off the boat because it would kill them if it was still there. That's what Paul is talking about here. All of those things are loss. And even more than that, he says that they are now rubbish to him. Uh, that Greek word there, uh, for rubbish is skubala. Um, it co- coincidentally starts with S um, because it describes another four-letter English word. Crap, duh. It speaks of excrement, dung, waste, poop. It was something that you threw away. It was disgusting. Now understand that what Paul is talking about, it, he's not saying that all of these things are bad in of themselves. That elsewhere in Scripture, Paul actually mentions how he does value the fact that he's a Jew. Right? He, he does value his heritage as people of God's promise. But what Paul is talking about, he's talking about how he viewed those things. His attitude towards those things. See, in his reevaluation, Paul recognized that none of these advantages, none of these things that he could boast about could serve as sufficient answers to that fundamental question, how can I be made right before God? They couldn't answer that question. Not only did the items on Paul's spiritual resume fail to earn him God's righteousness, but they were lost to him. They actually hurt him. They blinded him from seeing his desperate need for God's righteousness. That's what he says in verse 9. He says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, and it comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, the only sufficient answer to that question of how can I be made right before God is by this righteousness that is outside of ourselves. That's what he says. He says, not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness from God. See, it's not just the bad things that we do 
that keep us from being righteous before God. It's also that our best works aren't good enough to earn it. Let me say that again. It's not just that, our, it's not just that we have bad things that we've done that keep us from being righteous before God. It's also that our best works aren't good enough to earn God's righteousness. And if there was anyone who could, who could validate that claim, it was Paul. That Paul's conversion to Christianity was not attributable to his failure as a Pharisee in any way. No, Paul utterly succeeded in what he was trying to do. But look at what he mentions here, right? It's not the bad things that he's done. What changed for Paul wasn't primarily, in this passage, his understanding of his sin. It was how he understood his own good deeds. The message of Christianity is not that it makes good people better. It's not that it makes irreligious people more religious. The gospel makes dead people alive. It changes how you understand everything in your life. Tim Keller puts it like this. He said, it is only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness, that you were on the verge of becoming a Christian indeed. When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you are on the brink. So imagine that as Paul wrote this, that the scene of his conversion was playing in his mind. I don't know if you guys remember that story. When Paul um, then in Acts was named Saul, when he first shows up, he is watching and he is approving the execution of Stephen. Luke writes that he was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house, dragging men and women away to throw them into prison. And in Acts 9, uh, this is the chapter where he's converted. It begins by saying that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to do that very thing. Yet God saved him. He saved him. He was on his way to persecute Christians. He wasn't, in scripture, you have people who are like going to Jesus, right? And they're kind of curious about the kingdom of God. They're asking Jesus questions. They want to know what salvation is, but ultimately they walk away because they, they can't accept it. They don't understand. That wasn't Paul. God saved Paul apart from anything in him. He literally knocked him off his horse or donkey or whatever you wanna, he was on. And he says, I'm going to save you. Right? I'm going to intervene in your life. I'm going to save you from your hellbound race. I'm going to pluck you out from the darkness, from your death. So Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a gift that you cannot earn. It's a righteousness that is completely outside of yourself. And guys, if that's true, if, if Paul is talking about a righteousness that is completely not dependent on us, that is completely outside of you, I think one thing that means for us is that we must not trust in our own sincerity as a way of earning God's righteousness. We can't trust in our own sincerity. What do I mean by that? Well, I think most of us, we do acknowledge, we understand that we can't earn God's approval by our works, right? That's, that's anti-gospel. Salvation by works, of course not. Of course, we're not loved by God because, of, uh, because we're good. But even though we know that, I think there's still this like, impulse in us to believe that God loves us not because of who he is, but some way, somehow, because of who we are. And if it's not because of our good works, then, well, maybe like, it's because of our sincerity. Maybe God loves us because of our humility or our contrition or the fact that we feel bad over our sin. And if it's not our humility, then maybe it's the fact that we recognize that we're not as humble as we should be. 
right? Like God has to love something about us. God has to approve something about us. And so we offer that to God. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Thus, depth beneath depth, subtlety within subtlety, there remains some lingering idea of our own, our very own attractiveness. There is something that we want to do all the time to just earn God's favor, whether that's feeling bad over our sin, whether that's being, uh, feeling humble, whatever it might be, trying harder, making promises. We want to make ourselves attractive to God. See, we learn from Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and tax collector, that God does desire from us uh, the humble self-awareness of the tax collector, right? Like, we're supposed to be like that tax collector, not the Pharisee. But you know what we learn from Paul? We learn that God saves Pharisees too. That's not dependent on anything in us. So when Paul says that it's a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, he's not equating faith with our sincerity. He's not equating faith with like trying harder. He's not equating faith with, I just got to feel a certain way. No, faith is just the instrument that knits us to Christ. Faith is the beggar's outstretched hand to draw from Christ's riches. Last point here, number four, resolved. This is his resolution after knowing all of that. Verse 10, that I may know him and the, power of his re- and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If we know that our righteousness is in Christ, if we know that we stand before God as accepted, as approved, then that changes everything about how we think about the Christian life. And that's what we see here. Right, from seeking to establish and to maintain his own righteousness to pursuing by all means possible relationship with Christ. That's what we see Paul says here. I know this is a very uh, famous passage. I know it's a very theological passage. Right? It's justification by faith alone. Um, but I don't want you guys to miss the fact that this is a very personal passage. After all, Paul is talking about his own testimony. He's talking about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That is his new goal in life, that whatever it takes to get to know Christ more. And if that means sharing in his sufferings, then all that means for me, Paul says, is knowing more deeply the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ more. It's of surpassing worth to me. When Christ broke into Paul's life, he is transformed from this Pharisee seeking to establish his own righteousness before God into someone who is resolved to know Jesus in this personal relationship with him. You guys, let me ask you, is that how you talk about your Christian life? If I were to ask you, how is your walk going? Describe your faith to me. What would you say? Like, would you tell me like, what you believe, the truths that you believe? Would you tell me the things that you do, the ways that you serve at church? Would you talk to me about a person? Right? Would you talk to me about a Jesus that you know? that you are in relationship with by faith? Would you tell me about Jesus and what it is like to be loved by him, to be saved by him, what it is like to experience his faithfulness and his provision? Would you tell me about what it is like to follow him and to be led by him? What it's like to love him and to trust him and to follow him? Because when you, when you talk about your Christian life, do you talk about Jesus in that way? Or do you know him like that? I know it's cliche, but Paul shows us that the Christian life is not about religion, but relationship. 
Christian life is about Christ, and Christ is a person. Maybe you are well aware of that, as, but as Paul says in verse 1, uh, he says, to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. And what he's saying, he's saying we need to be reminded of the same things over and over. So how might that change what the Christian life looks like to you when you, when you go from here this week? That when it gets difficult for you to read the Bible, when it gets difficult for you to pray consistently, we need, we need to know that it is a person that we are getting to know through those disciplines. Right? When you have a hard time loving the difficult people in your life, we need to know that it is Christ, the person who loved us first. When we're unsure about the future, even though graduation is getting closer and closer, we need to know that it's Christ, the person, the good shepherd, who is leading us and who is guiding us. You can know that um, many of you are impressive, many of you are intelligent uh, and accomplished. And the world will tell you that it's those very things that will make you approved uh, and accepted and give you significance. Those, those are the things that are going to uh, justify your existence. But what the world will not tell you is that it will never be enough. And for some of you, you've made it into your dream school. But perhaps, as you're realizing now, you feel like you have to justify your admission. Or you have to prove, like, I deserve to be here. Some of you will land your dream jobs, but you will be consumed with having to justify that you were the right hire. And so on and so on. And these advantages and these accomplishments that you are chasing after will demand everything from you. And going back to our example from the beginning, uh, Mount Maru, it might cost you your own life. That it will take from you, and it, but it will never give you what you were looking for in the first place. But you know what? Christ will. Whereas all these other pursuits, they will take from you. You know what Christ does? Christ the person he gives of himself for you so that you might stand approved and so that you might stand accepted. And when that burden of approval is off of your shoulders, when you know that you don't have to impress God, that you don't have to make yourself acceptable before God, when you know that burden is off of your shoulders, then you are free to just enjoy him and to treasure him and to love him and to know him without fear, without reservation, without feeling like you have to prove yourself. So guys, what makes you accepted and approved when you stand before God? Christ is your righteousness. He is your confidence. And what is the Christian life all about? The surpassing worth of knowing him. You guys know the song, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it stops us in our tracks, reminds us that um, we don't need to approve ourselves, that because of the gospel, because of Christ, that you already approve of us, that it's not based on a righteousness of our own, but that which comes through faith uh, in Christ, that we're dressed in his perfect robe, So, Lord, I pray that knowing that, that the Christian life would be for us a pursuit of knowing Christ more, of looking at him and knowing that he, his worth surpasses anything else that we could seek approval from. Father, I pray that we'd be marked um, by people who just want to know you more, even if that means suffering for us, 
even if that means going through trials, that we might more deeply know the power of his resurrection. So, Father, if, if there is uh, in anyone here just an incorrect understanding of what Christianity means, of what it means to know you, Lord, would you correct that um, and restore to them just the joy of, of knowing Christ? Um, and I pray that we would leave this place um, just, yeah, more compelled uh, to follow after him. So, God, thank you. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to move into a time of small groups. Um, it's about 9-12. And so maybe we can go in small groups until...